0: Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Andy Weir. He is the author of the New York Times best selling novel, The Martian, and the winner of the John W. Campbell Award. His new novel is Project Hail Mary, which is published by our friends at Random House. Andy, thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And I want to go ahead and tell our listeners up front before we get started that we will divide this podcast up so there will be no content before the commercial break that will feature spoilers. But after the break, we will get into some discussions that might contain spoilers. So if you have not yet read Project Hail Mary, or if you're reading it now, you may want to pause at the break before continuing, and I'll remind you later just in case you forget. Uh, But Andy, before we dive into this excellent, excellent novel, I wanted to ask, I understand that you are a mixologist. That is (laughs) that you're skilled at making cocktails. What is your specialty?
1: Uh, I don't know if I'm skilled at it, but it's a hobby I had for a bit. Um, uh, you know, it's funny. It's like I know all these cocktails, these fancy schmancy recipes, but the drink I like to make the most is just a rum old-fashioned. You just uh, make an old-fashioned, but use a dark rum instead of whiskey. I like doing that. I, I, I I mean, I, I have my own recipe for it. But what I really like is if you order that in any bar anywhere, you'll get a different experience every time because every bartender kind of has their own take on how to make an old-fashioned. So yeah,
0: nice. That sounds really good to me, Andy. I'm going to have to order that the next time I go out.
1: Um, Same old-fashioned with dark rum. And, well, I generally ask what their rums are. Yeah, um, If they're well rum, if they have a dark rum, in their well, it'll usually be Myers or something. But mm-hmm. find out if they have some uh, Zacapa or uh, or um, what's another good one? Uh, yeah, Kraken. That's another good mm-hmm. one. It's very sweet. It goes well with uh, an old fashioned. Anyway, hey.
0: nice. I'm a fan of the Kraken. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. Um, this past year and change has been difficult to understate the obvious uh, with political <laughs> unrest, problems with the police, COVID nineteen gasoline shortages, and on and on and on. Uh, A lot of people have spent a lot more time at home than they ever intended to, and that time has largely been in isolation for many. Uh, When you write a novel that takes place in outer space, isolation, of course, is a main theme by necessity. How long ago did you start writing Project Hail Mary, and did the environment surrounding COVID-19 influence it at all? And even if it didn't, uh, do you expect that readers will project some of their experiences from the past year and a half or so onto Grace as he lives through this story in outer space?
1: Um, well, I, I, I'm i not sure when I started writing it, but I finished um, before COVID-19 was a thing, or more accurately, I finished the first draft in like January of 2019, 2020, 2020, January of 2020. Mm-hmm. And so just as COVID, at that time, it was just in kind of Wuhan and people were noticing it had just been identified. And I finished the uh, fin- the final edits and stuff in early March, right before it really started to become a pandemic. So I would say no, um, COVID didn't really have any effect on the creative side or, or the writing or anything like that. But, the, um, but yeah, I can absolutely see how people living in isolation and reading the book would would kind of project (laughs) would project that feeling into things
0: absolutely uh thank you so much andy and um what is happening in this novel is that there is this uh parasite might be the appropriate word a space parasite called astrophage appears and astrophage is siphoning energy from soul our sun and it is doing so at an alarmingly fast rate where did this idea come from
1: um, well, I started out by saying like, so um, I had an abandoned book that I was working on for a while called Zhek Z H E K, and I was working on that for about a year. I got about seventy thousand words in, and then I realized that it sucked, and uh, and I didn't, and it was kind of unsalvageable. So I, I ditched it, and started writing a completely new novel, Artemis, instead. Mm -hmm. Jack Jack had a lot of problems that made it kind of untenable as a project. Mm -hmm. But it did have one pretty cool thing in it, this concept of um, a special spacecraft fuel called black matter. And what black matter did was it was this kind of mysterious substance that had been invented by aliens that um, when any electromagnetic radiation, in other words, light, any light that hits it, would um, be converted into more black matter by the map by equals mc squared so you could take if you had any black matter at all you could grow more of it just by well shooting it with a strong laser or whatever but equals mc squared is is it it is absurd how much energy there is in a very small amount of mass so it takes a while to to get large quantities of black matter but the point is it was this perfect energy storage medium it's basically like antimatter but Without all the dangers involved. Um, And so, and you could use that as an excellent uh, spacecraft propellant because you you convert the energy back into light, shoot that out the back of your ship and your ship will go forward because although most people don't know this, light actually has momentum. If you were out floating in deep space in a spacesuit and you turned on a flashlight, the flashlight would actually give you a tiny amount of thrust. Anyway, so I was thinking about, oh, I want to write a story where we have that. Like, Jacques had all sorts of problems with black matter is cool. I want to write a story where we have that. Then I was like okay but how do we get it? I don't want to write a story that takes place thousands of years in the future and there's no way we can invent something like that with today's technology. Like okay, what if they find it? What if it's like an alien thing that they find and start working on? Like okay, that's interesting, but then I need to explain what the aliens, like why the aliens aren't around and where they came from and what they used it for and why it's there. Then I got to think like, well, it's actually like it turns energy into copies of itself and so that's kind of sounds like life doesn't it that's what we do (laughs) and so i said all right instead of some weird alien technology or some magical substance that i don't explain what if it's a life form it's basically a mold or an algae that grows on the surface of stars that's its native environment and it can spore out to uh, colonize and infect or whatever you wanna use nearby stars and that's Mm -hmm. its life cycle and that's how it it works. And I decided, so let's say some of that ended up in our system and then people get a hold of it and then they start breeding that in farms and stuff like that. And then we can have our, uh, you know, I can have colonies on Mars, I could do everything. That would be the foundation of the science. And then I got to thinking, uh, then I thought like, oh, well, we'd have to be really careful not to let any of that crap get in our sun because it would breed out of control and maybe cause problems for earth five second pause. Oh, wait, no, that's the book. You know, <laughs> there we are. That's the book. Okay. So the book now provides So here's the, the, the problem itself it provides you with an approach for a solution to the problem. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. Nolan. Um, thank you so much. And I know, uh, it can be a really tough decision to abandon a project. So oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm going to have to let uh, my five-year-old son listen to this part of the podcast because he was having a sort of existential crisis last night trying to figure out how people uh, break out of Earth and into space. So um, the part about uh, spacecraft propellant and thrust will be of interest to him. I was trying to explain all of that to him last night, but not as well as you can, I'm sure. Um, so... Andy, so Project Hail Mary is initiated, and the idea is that there is a star, a relatively close star, that seems unaffected by astrophage, and we need to go there to find out why it is unaffected in the hopes that we can save our sun and by way of doing so save life on earth andy uh what is this star does it really exist and how long would it take us to get there
1: well yeah within the context of the story they notice that of course they notice our sun is dimming and um it's because astrophage is just breeding it's doubling its population wildly on the sun and it's never going to like completely blot out the sun or anything, but even a five to 10% reduction of the sun's output would be basically fatal to all life on Earth. We have a certain life on Earth evolved to have a certain amount of energy hitting the planet. And if that's not happening, we're going to have the mother of all ice ages, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and they notice that all the nearby stars are also dimming, they notice from observations, except this one star, Tau Ceti. Tau Ceti is real. And it, mm-hmm. it it really exists in the real universe, and it is twelve light years away. Um, now, since they, once they understand astrophage, they understand how astrophage works, it collects a whole bunch of energy while it's living on the star, and it stores it as mass, basically in the form of neutrinos, and then it can turn that back into light energy to propel itself. Now, astrophage is just a single-celled organism, like 20 picometers across. It's a microbe. So it's not like it has an agenda or anything like that. It's just mold, but it stores up energy and then spreads um it actually has to travel to an you know a nearby planet in orbit around the the host star to it needs to migrate in order to reproduce because stars on the outer parts of the star you'll only find hydrogen and helium and astrophage actually need uh, more complex elements so they travel to a nearby planet to get carbon dioxide which they need to ultimately reproduce and then they go back to the star and that's the life cycle and sometimes they spore out in a random direction and some teeny tiny percentage of them all it takes is one hitting a star just to be able to colonize that star so um, every so they could see the progression of astrophage based by on how dim the stars are and they could see that, you know, basically they figured out the range of astrophage is about eight light years. An astrophage just traveling in a straight line can go about eight light years before it just stars to death, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a, a star that's infected with astrophage will eventually infect all the stars within eight light years, and so on. And so, there's this area in the galaxy, kind of near us that is doing that. And they notice Tau Ceti is right in the middle of that affected area, but completely unaffected by astrophage. Everything else is getting dimmer, but not Tau Ceti. So they decide, well, we want to go there and we want to find out why. How do you do an interstellar trip with modern technology? Well, they figure out how to control astrophage. And so they breed up 2 million kilograms of astrophage and, and, are able to invent a a propulsion drive that uses astrophage as propulsion so the mechanism that astrophage uses to propel itself they get the astrophage to use that to push the ship and uh, i did all the math on it and everything so it's all actually accurate and uh 12 light years it takes uh well you can't go faster than light right so From Earth's point of view, it takes the Hail Mary, which is the name of the ship, 13 years to get to Talaseti. It's traveling near the speed of light. Um, But from the crew of the Hail Mary's point of view, it's only four years because of time dilation that happens with relativistic travel.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh, Like you do. Yeah, of course. Um, This is fantastic. Thank you so much, Andy. This is all very fascinating information. Uh, Something that is mentioned in your book, but not detailed, because you have another story to tell, is what happens on Earth while Project Hail Mary is heading to the star. Uh, do you think, with time moving on, 16 to 32 years, the sun's energy decreasing, certain ecologies and food supplies dying out? Do you find it more likely that humanity? would band together for a few decades in order to wait out the solution to this problem? Or do you think it is more likely that some of the larger militaristic countries like the United States and China, as you mentioned, would go to war in an effort to secure what food supplies remain for their populations while waiting on the possibility of Hail Mary's return?
1: Um, Okay, so if I were writing a book about it, I would probably have the countries be working together fairly well. There'd be trouble and strife and problems, but they would be working together well. Uh, but I, I, I write a very optimistic view of the world. Mm-hmm. I think that in, in the real world, I think the, the more developed countries would actually be pretty civil um, and they would work really hard to make sure everybody gets fed. Uh, the United States, for instance, would actually be in really good shape because we're kind of the breadbasket of the world. I mean, we produce an overwhelming surplus of food in the U.S. We export food. We we, we subsidize farmers and tell them not to grow food because we don't want to just waste it. So I think, you know, it depends on where you are. If you're in the U.S., you'd probably be fine because the U.S. has a very large military to, you know, so no one's going to come and take our stuff. And also we have the ability to generate enough food to feed our entire population just within our borders. Now the collapse of the food chain and biosphere and stuff like that would affect that. But we have the ability to produce multiples of the amount of food necessary. So I think like within the United States, for instance, we would probably ramp up food production immediately and just generate as much stored food as possible before the, the really bad parts of the ice age set in. Mm -hmm. Um, Now uh, looking at other parts of the world, unfortunately, I think that, the developed countries would be so focused on just keeping their own people from starving to death that we wouldn't be able to help the less the less developed countries i think there'd be mass starvation and death in the third world and um also for a country like china that ultimately has to import a lot of its food for its enormous population i really do think that it would it would uh, i think they'd start taking over nearby countries and it, it, I think it would get really ugly in Asia and the U.S. wouldn't do anything to stop it. And neither would Europe because we'd all be focused so heavily on our own problems. So that's my, you know, my view of what would really happen. Mm-hmm. But if I was writing a book, I like to keep things optimistic and I like to have humanity working together. I think that I would I would say that, they may, that it would be all about this careful balance at any moment the the political structure could fall apart, but they sit there and run through all the math and say like, okay, if we do it just right, you know, countries like the US, Canada, and Mexico can convert almost entirely to an agrarian uh, system and might be able to feed, might be able to just see us through long enough, you know, so let's all work together on this and see what we can do, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely, thank you for that answer andy listeners a reminder to pause this podcast here and return to it later if you are worried about spoilers this will be your last warning for now we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor and then i will be right back with andy weir the book and podcast is sponsored by libro fm audiobooks libro fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore Whale Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Andy Weir, author of Project Hail Mary, which is published by our friends at Random House. And listeners, we have entered the spoiler section of the interview. I told you that uh, it was your last warning, but I lied. This is your last warning. Um, Spoiler. Yes, exactly. Uh, Andy, I want to talk about the first meeting between Grace and Rocky and how their relationship progressed From there, Uh, can you talk to us about the thought process that went into human and alien communication? That is how Grace and Rocky would begin the process of communicating with one another.
1: I had such a fun time with that. I mean, that was, uh, I, I I had it in mind all along for this to be a, a first contact story. And um, for those of you who ignored the spoiler warning, haven't read the book and are listening to the podcast anyway, um, basically once Ryland uh, reaches um, Tau Ceti, he finds there's an alien spacecraft there. And it turns out the, these alien, although it takes a there's a, quite a lot of first con- fun, first contact stuff and language stuff. But ultimately, um, it turns out the, these aliens, um, they're from the star 40 Eridani, which is also another real um, star. And they have the exact same problem. Astrophage has also infected their star, and it's going to destroy their biosphere. And they also noticed that Tau Ceti isn't affected, so they also sent a ship and um we meet rocky who is a you know they from that planet and he's in iridian as uh, our uh, rocky's language is all just musical notes and tones it sounds kind of like whale song but he has five sets of vocal cords so he can make chords um and uh so everything that is named having to do with Rocky and his species and stuff was named by Ryland. So he calls him Rocky because he looks like a roughly pentagonal. He looks like a spider, um, a spider that's about the size of a Labrador dog. And he's roughly pentagonal with five arms. Um, And the arms, you could call them arms. You could call them legs. They're interchangeable. They can stand on, two or three of those appendages and use the others for work each arm has like basically a shoulder and elbow and then three claws at the end that are like at 120 degree angles so that they can grip stuff like that and um, so that's what Rocky is also uh, just because I really I, I like hard sci-fi I like realistic science fiction I said like none of this like you know humanoid with some forehead bumps crap. I want like really really alien aliens like Rocky's species, the Iridians. Like I, I said, they're like these spiders and and their their carapace is like has like rocky protrusions on it, hence the nickname that Ryland gave them. And then also their native environment is about 450 degrees Celsius of pure ammonia. And it's 29 times Earth's atmospheric pressure. It is completely fatal to any human who goes into their environment, and our environment is completely fatal to Iridians, not just because it's almost a vacuum as far as they're concerned, and also not just because it's incredibly freezing cold, deadly cold from their point of view, but also because, and they think this is a, they, they were. Sub- you know, Rocky says he's surprised to learn it's even possible for life to exist like this. But because we have free oxygen in our air, um, an iridian who comes into our environment will literally just catch fire because it's really hot and it has um, flammable elements on its on its body. Their atmosphere doesn't have any free oxygen, so all that is like lots of fun. And then uh, the other thing I had a lot of fun with was by saying that there are a few places where Iridian technology is better than Earth's, uh, most notably materials science. They have this material that they've invented called xenonite, or that's that's what Ryland calls it, that's like the much, much higher tensile strength than anything humanity has ever invented. So they're definitely far ahead of us on materials science. But in just about every other way, Earth is much more advanced. And I thought I'd have fun with that, too, because in almost every story, it's the aliens who are super advanced and teaching us stuff. Mm -hmm. But in this case, my protagonist has the unsettling realization. He's like, oh, crap, I'm the advanced alien. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm the one who has to try to help him and and so on. And the book is really from that point on, it's a kind of a buddy comedy. Now, less of a comedy, but I mean, there's a lot of jokes, but it's really a story about friendship. And that's a, a thing I wanted to do. They're both scientists and they have the same objective. Find, find out why Tau city is an into astrophage.
0: Right on. thank you, Andy. And I want to ask you to elaborate on a few of the things that you just brought up first, uh, mentioning the differences in the atmospheres that, um, both uh, races kind of exist in on their home planets. How much thought and calculation on your part goes into determining how a life form from Rocky's planet and a human from earth could coexist in the same space. Like how much time do you have to spend doing uh, calculations to figure out how to write this into your story?
1: Well, they can't coexist in the same place. So the way that they are able to coexist is Rocky builds basically tunnels uh, Mm -hmm. made of Xenonite. Clear xenonite throughout uh, Ryland's ship. Um, the Hail Mary, Ryland's ship, is far more advanced than Rocky's ship, um, but uh, and so they decide that they'll they'll be aboard the Hail Mary to do all their work as they as they cooperate together. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so they they actually can't coexist in the same environment. Uh, as for research um, and and coming up with stuff. Uh, I designed um, Rocky's species based on, well, I started off with information that I know about their homeworld, because their homeworld is a real exoplanet that exists. So, this, the, 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 the planet I decided they're from, it's called, I think, 40 Eridani AB or something like that. But it is, it's the first planet in the solar system of 40 Eridani and 40 Eridani is the name of a star. Um, And that first planet is very close to the star. It orbits the whole star in like 46 days or something. So that's the length of their year. And then it's also, that's known, that's real world information. Then another thing that's real world information is that their planet is about, that planet is about eight times the mass of earth. So from there, I just kind of decided a few other things. I said, I'm going to say it's about the same density of earth. I'm going to say it has a liquid metal core so that it has a magnetic field. And uh, basically I said like, okay, I'm going to say it's the same density as earth. And then that ends up telling me the surface gravity ends up being about two, two Gs, a little bit more than two Gs. So that's what Iridians live in. And then I said like. Okay. For our next trick, um, that planet is really close to the star. When you're a planet that's that close to the star, your atmosphere just gets sandblasted away. Mm -hmm. That's why Mercury's got nothing. Um, But if you have a strong magnetic field like Earth does, then you get to keep your atmosphere. (laughs) And so I decided, well, the planet Arid then, because it's so close, It has to have a really strong magnetic field. So I decided it's got a liquid metal core, which is one of the requirements to have a magnetic field, and it spins really fast. Um, The faster a planet spins, the stronger its magnetic field. And so I said, like, okay, it has to spin really fast in order to have enough magnetic field to retain the atmosphere. And then I'm like, okay, so now I've just learned that the length of a day on ARID is very short. So now, okay, there we go. We're getting somewhere. Next thing is it's really freaking hot there right? It's right next to the star. And I said Mm -hmm. like, okay. And I had decided it's, it's kind of a plot thing in the book, but I decided that um, contrary to what our protagonist genuinely believed, you do actually require liquid water for life, or at least within this context, we later find out it's a panspermia event and we are, we're all extremely distantly related, but you do require liquid water for life. I'm like, how does a planet that close to a star have liquid water? How do, you, how do you have an ocean that close to a star? I mean, it must be way, way too hot for that. And I'm like, well, um, the boiling point of water is based on the temperature and the pressure. So if the atmospheric pressure is really, really high, then the water can be really, really hot and still be liquid. So I did some math on that and I decided that the atmospheric pressure, they have 29 times Earth's atmospheric pressure which, and their surface temperature is about 210 degrees Celsius. The boiling point of water is higher than that at 29 degrees. um, Sorry, at 29 atmospheres. So bit by bit, just by kind of doing these little logical tests in my mind, how do I make this? How do I make this? How do I make this? I ended up defining the environment that Rocky's biosphere evolved in. Mm -hmm. And from there, then I said like, okay, so now, what's, how does that biosphere work? I'm like, that is a thick atmosphere. That's almost like an ocean. It's almost like, the. I mean, it functions like an ocean. So I decided there are like um, uh, photosynthesizing monocellular organism floating in the upper atmosphere. And then below that, there's things eating those. And below them, there's things eating those. And if you get all the way down to the surface of the planet, you have the the apex predators, the biggest guys that eat the next biggest guys. And so that's what, Rocky's species, just like humans are the apex predator on Earth, mm-hmm. Iridians are the apex predator on their planet. And though then I then I decided, like, well, there's so much life and such a thick atmosphere that no light reaches the surface. So that means Iridian's never evolved sight. And so he's actually blind, but he has excellent echolocation. And so it's bit by bit, this is how I ended up defining what what Rocky's physiology is.
0: That right. was one yeah. Thanks, Andy. And i um, super impressed, by the way, that you're just pulling all of these numbers out of your head. Uh, no.
1: <laughs> well, I did all the research to get yeah. there and I'm just remembering the results. That's all.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right on. Well, um, thank you, Andy. Uh, as you mentioned, um, humanity and Rocky's uh, alien alien to us race um, are related. Uh, astrophage as it travels through space um, seeds planets with what eventually involves into sentient life uh, can you talk to us about this theory that all life would be evolved from these same seeds
1: well within within the story so we we learned that Tau City is actually the, um, the home system of Astrophage. That's where Astrophage first evolved. Mm-hmm. And the reason why the star itself is not affected is because there's a whole biosphere involved in this. And um, Astrophage has a predator there. And so there's this um, like there's, there's this thing that ultimately Grace names the Tau Miba. And it's it's basically a thing that lives in the upper atmosphere of this planet and orbit around tau Ceti and it eats astrophage as the astrophage is migrating there to reproduce and that's what keeps the astrophage population in check and that's why tau Ceti didn't dim okay so that has a whole biosphere well they realize um, during the book that a an ancestor of astrophage something from four billion years ago because of course evolution is always happening everywhere but some ancestor of astrophage was an interstellar like microbe, like astrophage, and it would go around and reproduce by whatever means it it did. And every now and then it would hit, it would land on a planet where it's able to reproduce and keep reproducing. And so planets were all seeded, planets near the Tau Ceti system, star systems near Tau Ceti were ultimately all seeded by this astrophage ancestor. Uh, including Earth and including uh, the Iridian homeworld, the, the Rockies homeworld, and so what they find is that you know, astrophage and humans and Iridians—they all have mitochondria. They all use DNA to encode information. They all have the same alleles and proteins. They—they have—they—they um, they use ATP for energy storage and so on. And so it's actually like. The bulk of evolution that made the mechanisms of life happened on this planet that Grace named Adrian in orbit around Tau Ceti. And then that panspermia out to Earth and Arid, which is the nickname of the Aridian homeworld, and who knows where else. Mm-hmm. And so the reason I did all that is because it's twofold. Number one, I didn't want to have to invent three biospheres well two we live in one i don't have to invent that but i would have had to invent the biosphere that astrophage came from and how that works and how that's it then i would have had to have invented a new biosphere for for rocky's homeworld and come up with whatever you know, science fiction mumbo jumbo I could to like, how does life work here? How does life work there? So if I just say it's a panspermia event, then I'm like, life works the same because we all have a common ancestor. Um, then the next thing is um, it was a bit too much for my own crit- um, what do I call it. It was a bit too much for my own suspension of disbelief to think that three stars that are so incredibly close together would all just happen to um, have their own genesis, their own development of life. I mean, Tau Ceti is 12 light years from here. Um, Forty Eridani, I think it's 16 light years from here. It's nine light years from Tau Ceti. So there's your little triangle of where things take place. The Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years across. So I mean, these little things that are like 12 light years, 16 light years, they're like right on top of each other. It's absurd. It's absurd how close to each other these stars are. And it just didn't seem plausible that the, the life would be that likely.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, thank you, Andy. Um, more than once, um, at least twice I've read about an alien race that looks like spiders mm-hmm. Uh how did you choose this look for Rocky along with everything else uh, about Rocky? And why do you think um, that there are at least uh, a couple people who believe that intelligent alien life forms uh, would evolve to look like spiders?
1: Um, well, for me, I, I again, I... So I, I based Rocky's species just on the environment that they're from. Yeah. They wouldn't be very tall because the gravity is very high, but they would be very strong because the gravity is very high. They're very sure-footed, and I, 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 I spiders are and insects in general are an extremely good quote unquote design mm-hmm. from an evolutionary standpoint on in in the real world. You see that come up over and over and over again in evolution. It's always just like feet and and claws that grip, you know, one way or another, all the way down to the insect level, all the way up to the elephants, right? Um, and so that's extremely effective. And since I, I decided there is no light reaching the bottom, then there doesn't have to be a primary, like. One of the main purposes of our heads, which goes back to even before mammals separated from reptiles, one of the main purposes of our heads is to serve as basically a camera mount for our eyes. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have vision as part of your uh, evolved traits, then you don't need that, you don't need like a head and you can just have a carapace, a solid thing. Now you do need legs, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Yeah, so I don't know why other science fiction authors have had intelligent spiders, but this is why I made them spiders. Now, I also believe that anything with sufficient brain capacity could be the intelligent life form on a planet. Mm -hmm. Um, On our planet, it turned out to be primates, but maybe if uh, an asteroid had hit in a different place or something like that, we all might be like, you know, super intelligent horses. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right on. Super intelligent horse as well. Um, Andy, I'm going to step away from Rocky for one moment and then come right back to him for our final question. But I have to ask you, um, how did the other two astronauts on the flight die? Was it just a system malfunction?
1: Yeah, I've, I, 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 I've been asked that. And the idea was that the coma pods are very dangerous mm-hmm. and that it's not it's not an automatic you know, it, it, it's, it was untested technology and it wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. And like the, you know, it was a medical robot that's not AI. It was very well programmed, but it's a robot whose job is to keep three humans alive in comas for like four years and two of them died of, I don't know, some malady that the robot couldn't handle. Maybe an infection, maybe a bed sores, maybe maybe, you know, a heart a heart condition developed in one of them or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's true. I never defined how they died, but it wasn't supposed to be a big mystery or anything. It's just mm-hmm. that this system is unreliable
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and not very well tested.
0: Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to know, and now I know. <laughs> um but finally, uh this novel took hold of me. More than the most, yeah, it was fantastic. Ten out of ten novel uh, in my eyes, and um, it was because of the relationship between Grace and Rocky. Uh, were there any other novels about friendship or buddy films that inspired you as you were building this relationship between the two?
1: Um, you know, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. uh, from the old Bob Hope and Bing Crosby road movies. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, it was always these uh, the the road to whatever mm-hmm. <laughs> these these weird things and and they're kind of buddies and although I think I think in those movies they're usually guys who don't like each other very much mm-hmm. but they kind of grow to be friends and stuff um, mm-hmm. that sort of thing I, I I don't know it's just a it's just a story about friendship I really wanted to hit that hard.
0: Fantastic. Well, you did a wonderful job. And I want to thank you for writing this excellent novel, which will undoubtedly uh, be one of the best that I read this year. Listeners, I've been speaking with Andy Weir, author of Project Hail Mary, which is published by our friends at Random House. Andy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Andy Weir for joining me. Copies of Project Hail Mary can be ordered from www.quillridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Reader's Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space, to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.